Howdy folks, and welcome to the Sixth Ranch Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by State Representative Mark Owens and County Commissioner Todd Nash, my dad. We stayed at Representative Owens' home on a trip to attend a meeting for the Oregon Cattlemen's Association and the Oregon Beef Council. Mark is a good man and a natural leader. He started working as a farmhand and continued that work until he owned land of his own, which he now farms. He's a fearless representative of Western culture, heritage, and natural resources, with tremendous knowledge of the land and its people. My dad is much the same. We talk mule deer, aquifers, coyotes, timber, and leadership. Enjoy the show. So I have Representative Mark Owens from Harney County, and what all do you cover as a representative? So I was appointed as a representative back in February to House District 60. House District 60 is 23% of the southeast corner of the state of Oregon, encompassing all of Malheur, Harney, Grant, and Baker, and part of Lake County. So it's a huge area. Yeah. If you were to explain how big this area is to somebody who lived in another part of the country, how would you do that? So it encompasses probably two to three eastern states. So you could probably take uh, New York... Pennsylvania and a couple others and put them into House District 60. That's amazing. How many people live in that district? Approximately 63,000. 63,000. So still quite a few people. Um, you know, in Eastern Oregon standards where people are spread way out, that's, that's a lot of folks that you're standing up for. So every House district in the state is split up by population. So we all represent about the same amount of people. Oh, really? What changes is the geographic location to house that many people. I didn't know that. That makes sense. Um, that's a pretty fair way for it to go, isn't it? Yeah. And I also have with me my dad, who is a county commissioner from Wallowa County. And we're down here outside Burns at uh, Representative Owen's house. And we're going to go to um, um, Oregon Beef Council meeting tomorrow. And Mark, you, um, you're a really impressive guy to me because... You you worked your way into this American dream of, of farming and did so in, in a way that allowed you to give back even more by being a, a community service member. So how did, how did that all come together? Like, where did you start and how did you get here? Hmm. Uh, where did I start and how did I get here? So I was originally born in Walnut Creek, California. My parents moved me out of there on my eighth birthday. They moved us out of outside of Portland, Oregon, in a little town called Boring, Oregon. Went through there. When I was in high school, I met a friend, Lance Abels. His dad had a ranch out here. He was an absentee owner. So I started coming up to Harney County when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, after high school, I went back and was supposed to go play football and decided not to. Started some horticulture or landscaping. Got into some things I probably shouldn't have. Came back to Harney County because it's the only place I'd actually ever found peace. Arnie County uh, allowed me to, uh, as my wife always appreciates me saying this, live the American dream uh, and be very successful. The most successful thing in Harney County was meeting my wife, Celeste, marrying her and having two great kids. I saw some of the opportunities that I had had becoming harder for others. And when I saw that, I figured that I'd been fortunate enough it was time for me to give back. So I got on the planning commission and from the planning commission, I wanted to become a county commissioner and as I became a county commissioner, I found a lot of value in the other Eastern Oregon counties. Uh, met your met your father, Todd, 
Uh, Todd and I had a, built a great relationship uh, serving our individual counties, but found out that we had a lot of uh, like concerns. It seemed like that most of the Eastern Oregon counties had a lot of like concerns. So when the opportunity came to serve more of Eastern Oregon, I had grown enough as a leader that I thought, why don't I give it a shot? What are some leadership principles or, or traits that, that are important to you, things that you feel like you possess as a leader? I think one of my greatest assets is learning, learned how to be a voice of my constituents, learn how to bring a lot of their concerns and a lot of their issues to people that are in charge. And I can do it most of the time maintaining a rational thought process and not getting too emotional. I see a lot of, uh, a lot of my community members are very passionate about something. And they get that passionate, they try to explain it or they try to promote change and they get more frustrated and they can't get it done. So I feel like I have an ability to be that voice for people. Now, I listened to your speech um, that was regarding a, a house bill that was going to ban coyote hunting competitions. Now, my understanding is that the the consequences of banning that bill would have been really severe um, because there's currently really no regulation on coyote hunting at this time and that's that's part of Oregon's constitution isn't it? So I'm not sure it's part of Oregon's constitution that there's no ban but uh, as you know James uh, coyotes are predator so there's no hunting season on predators predators can be shot or dispatched at any time any part of the year so it's not a game animal so therefore there's no basically rules or laws that says when or how you can shoot a coyote. And do coyotes really do any damage in Oregon? They do a lot of damage. So it's not, the coyote is not perceived in Eastern Oregon as probably the same as it is perceived in Western Oregon. So a lot of us don't find it as a cutty, warm dog. Uh, the economic hardship that a coyote can play on a rancher is devastating. When you've seen a coyote eating a calf that's coming out of a cow, or you see a coyote that's eating the prolapse of a heifer that's lying down, and you know that rancher is not going to be able to have income from that, and the suffering that's happening to that animal, it becomes more than... It's a predator, and it's also a predator that's affecting the livelihood of the biggest agriculture asset we have out here. And then for the sheep producers as well. Yeah, it can be devastating, more devastating to a sheep herd than, than a cow herd. I mean, it can go through and just kill for pleasure. And take a lot of the profitability out of a uh, whole operation in one or two nights. Dad, what kind of um, effects have you seen on livestock from coyotes over your time in Wallowa County, which is quite a lot different from, from here? This is more of a great basin type feel, sagebrush, a little bit less topography. Wallowa County is more alpine, canyons, um, valleys, things like that. So my experience with coyotes has not been necessarily negative as far as the cattle industry in Wallowa County. Uh, in in the time that, that I raised cattle there, I never knew that I actually lost one single calf to a coyote. And, and that isn't the same with all my neighbors. I had neighbors that got hit at different times, and, and much like Mark described, there were some of them that when heifers were in the calving process uh, the coyotes would get accustomed to eating the calf on the way out and and uh, but there were a lot of mitigation efforts to take care of, of those individual coyotes as long as I got along with them 
Uh, we we got rid of a lot of coyotes. Uh, we we did shoot some. Uh, we did trap some. Did some aerial gunning. Uh, but for the most part, uh, me personally, I got along pretty good. And I'm a huge fan of killing coyotes myself. I enjoy a great deal. I like trapping coyotes, I like calling coyotes. And it's really part of part of our culture as, as hunters in the Intermountain West and in the Midwest for sure is that this is something that we do. And we feel good about contributing to both removing some pressure from the the livestock in the area as well as removing pressure from the 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 coyotes prey base which is oftentimes the same thing that hunters are targeting so where we have mule deer that are plummeting their populations all across their range we know that coyotes are killing a lot of mule deer fawns and the only way to improve a mule deer population is to have fawns that hit the ground and survive so if you have coyotes killing fawns then you're going to have this very, very precarious struggling population that isn't going to have the same opportunity for success. So any chance that we have to remove coyotes um, is a good thing. And and coyotes have compensatory birthing. Um, You know, despite every eradication effort that people have attempted, whether it's poison, aerial gunning, trapping, bounties, coyotes are so resilient. It's amazing. They're going to be here a long time after we are. So any method that we can use to um, to take the pressure off of those prey animals that matter to us, whether that is livestock or whether that's um, that the animals that we want to go out and hunt, like deer and elk and antelope, you know, I I think it's a good thing. And the fact that there was people that didn't understand that and, and kind of wanted to get in the way of, of this coyote derby that was removing a handful of animals, like 60-something coyotes. Yeah, so the uh, ter- derby or high coyote calling contest that came under uh, a lot of scrutiny i believe that weekend they only killed 68 or 69 yeah you bring up a point james it's it's interesting the uh what did you say the compensatory compensatory birthing birthing. so that was actually one of the arguments on why they shouldn't allow you to have coyote derbies Mm. because actually the more coyotes you kill the more they have dogs and uh the population goes up one thing we tried to convince them is we pay to have coyotes dispatched. We pay flyers to come in. So we can bring people in to actually do that. One, it saves us money. Two, it's sport. And three, it starts to put the fear of God into that coyote. So when they see a rancher, they see a farmer, they see a vehicle, they become cautious. So when you're in your cow herd and you're going out to check your cows, just the presence of you will put those dogs on guard and have them maybe stay away farther and go back into their native range and prey off of everything you want to hunt, but at least it's not preying off of the cow or calf. Yeah. And we also have the sage grouse down here, right? Do you, have, has that been part of your battle at all, either within agriculture or politics? Yeah. So the sage grouse actually really blew up uh, prior to being becoming a county commissioner. And they've done a lot of work on that. But the sage grouse habitat in southeast Oregon has the very, very harsh impacts on grazing or anything else. They want it at all costs to save the bird. Yeah. And at all costs, meaning that if they found a lek, like a sage grouse mating ritual site, how far did they want to keep cattle away from that? Todd might know that better than me, but I mean, they don't want you grazing near leks. I don't know the answer to that. We don't have any sage grouse habitat or presence of, of sage grouse in Wallowa County. And so I've been mostly distanced from that. 
Um, there was incentive programs to do um, resource mitigation and uh, those conservation efforts. A lot of the f farmers and ranchers down here signed on to those things so that they could go ahead and keep operating and uh, and recognize those conservation efforts and so there's been a lot of cooperation collaboration between agencies u.s fish and wildlife the state and uh, and individual ranchers and, and organizations and so so far uh, we've kept the sage grouse from being listed here and and uh, and that's been a great success story um, of course we do have um some of the conservation groups that aren't happy with that still, and, and there's still rumblings of, of lawsuits. So we'll see where it ends up. But uh, I really salute these guys for, for keeping the sage grouse as healthy as can be, uh, working through the problems and, and uh, recognizing that uh, there's maybe some solutions out there where everybody can stay operating. Todd refers to the, the group. It's the uh, Candidate Conservation Assurances, so CCAs. And a lot of the ranchers in southeast Oregon has put in for that, and that is trying to develop better sage-grouse habitat while maintaining grazing. And it's been highly successful, and it also gives them a guarantee if the bird does get listed that they won't be impacted. So it has been a win-win. It has been showing how the, the rancher can work with ODF&W and, and work with the federal government in order to protect a bird and maintain grazing activities. And if we are talking about protecting a sage-grouse, which is a ground-nesting, ground-dwelling bird, we also need to think about protecting it from ground predators like coyotes and bobcats. And one of the animals that people really don't consider that is extremely hard on the sage grouse is the raven. And anything within Corvidae is fairly well protected against hunting. There's no hunting for ravens at all. But there have been places where ravens have been reduced through government, government coals or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot going against a sage grouse and we have ranchers and farmers down here who are doing everything they can to promote sage grouse habitat while also maintaining their livelihood and producing food for everyone who's out here listening because we all enjoy food and that's what makes us be able to survive and that comes from agriculture. Just a subtle reminder. Another thing is, Dad, you said um, conservation groups um, in for for some reason, that word just doesn't seem to sit quite right with me. And I, I tend to call them preservation groups. And I'll remind people that conservation is the prevention of the wasteful use of a resource. And that is the definition. So when we're talking about conservation biology, we're talking about things occurring in nature that we can consider a resource and preventing the wasteful use of those things. That is not what these groups are doing. They are preservation groups that don't want to have any impact in any way. And um, it's, it's an idyllic and unrealistic approach to, um, to solving these problems that, that are real, prob real problems. Excuse me. So that's my bet on conservation. And you guys are going to hear that and more from me in the future. I call them much worse than that, really. <laughs> But I'm just trying to be polite here. Let me give you an example on that one. So a, a conservation or preservation group might be the Audubon Society. So the Audubon Society has been one of the biggest protectors of sage-grouse there is. They actually don't believe that grazing and the bird can be compatible, where the science says it can. 
So they're some of the ones that are speaking the highest that like to try to get all cattle off the range of sage-grouse. As you mentioned, James, one of the biggest death rates for sage-grouse is avian predation. Yep. So ravens and crows. So the Audubon Society lobbies against any killing of ravens and crows, but their number one bird they want to protect is the sage-grouse. The number one threat to the sage-grouse is ravens and crows. They'd rather kick cows out than to try to eliminate the one species that is killing their protected bird. And we get back to the argument whether it's more important to have a barred owl or a spotted owl. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a murky one. That's a topic unto itself. In the, in the spirit of resources, we're geographically in a really unique place. And I would say geologically in a really unique place as well because this is a closed basin. So what does that mean? Closed basin. So Harney County or Harney Basin is the only closed basin in the state of Oregon. So no water leaves this basin and goes to the ocean. That's fascinating. So um, we can think about this as a bowl with a lake at the very bottom of it. And all the snow, all the rain ends up um, going either into this lake or down into the ground and going down into groundwater, correct? Yeah, so the sump, the lake, most any excess water that comes off as springs or streams ends up in the lake. They're telling us that very little actually gets to recharge underneath the ground. Okay. And then there are some tributaries coming into this water that are actually very productive trout fisheries as well, right? Yeah, so your your Blitzen, your Sylvies, and sometimes your Malheur, your Blitzen is one of the, and has quite a bit of red band trout. Seems to be a very stable population in that area. And the the red band is a native native rainbow trout that, unlike rainbow trout in the rest of the state that can access the ocean, this is a resident species. So a rainbow trout in the John Day or the Deschutes or the Wallow or the Grand Ronde or the Snake, it can lay eggs with another rainbow trout that's a resident, and some of those eggs will go to the ocean and come back as steelhead, and some will remain and be residents. So it really gets muddled up. So we just call all those fish um, on Cornicus micus, whereas the red band trout is a thing unto itself because we do have this really unique closed basin type of geography. They never have the chance to become a steelhead because they'll never hit saltwater. And Malheur Lake down here, this this sump, um, it has some invasives that are causing quite a few problems, right? It does. So uh, ever since the flood in the 80s, when the water took over a vast amount of areas, somehow something happened that carp got introduced. And they've never been able to control the carp population in the lake since the 80s. Interesting. Well, we know from other areas that carp eggs are very, very sticky. They have an adhesive element to them, and carp want to lay their eggs um, on vegetation, and that's why they tend to spawn in the springtime when water gets up to that 68 to 72 degree mark, and you know they're up there in that flooded vegetation sticking their eggs to stuff. But what is also in that vegetation at the same time is waterfowl, migratory waterfowl. So it's very easy for these eggs to get stuck to the feet of waterfowl. And then when they go to a new area, they can be transporting fertilized carp eggs to that new area. Um, so what folks have to realize is that it's not good enough to say, okay, we have carp in this pond. They're not going to go anywhere. 
Um, the complication is that we have birds that can, they can help them travel great distances. So that's, that's a very strong possibility because you have a tremendous number of migratory waterfowl that move through this area, right? Yeah. It's, uh, the sonic flyway. It's one of the, one of the most important flyways for the migratory, migratory birds. Can you tell me anything more about that? I mean, I saw migratory birds out here that I couldn't even identify this evening. Yeah, neither can I, but, uh, so as, <laughs> as they're going from north to south, they, they tell me they need places to rest over. And so this is one of the better places for them to rest over because of the flood meadows of the rancher, the water that's in the lake, the breeding capacity. So it's basically a big rest stop on the big sonic flyway. So water being in this closed basin where we have an aquifer that we don't fully understand how it's replenished and it looks like it doesn't get replenished very easily at all. Um, we're using that water to irrigate crops, which then go to feed people or go to feed animals that then feed people. This is tedious. This is like drawing money from a bank account that we're not depositing money into. At least we're not depositing money into it at the same rate that we're withdrawing it. So how do you how do you deal with a dynamic like that? Because we have a growing population in the world, we've got to feed them, and we need irrigated crops to do so. So how how does this all work? So it is, it is complicated, and there's different a lot of varying opinions on that. But you use the analogy of a, of a bank account, which is a good analogy. The the USGS scientists and water resource department scientists are coming in and doing a comprehensive groundwater study, and a lot of the things they look at is the water budget. The water budget, like you say, is just like a bank account. So much gets deposited every year and recharged, and so much gets pulled out, whether through natural evapotranspiration or through the production of ag, like you say. And so they're saying we're drawing down our bank account faster than it's being put in. But let's give you a hypothetical, James. The area that's declining the fastest in this basin is called Weaver Springs. The static water level there in March is about 100, 110 foot. And so it's dropping five to eight foot a year, measured in March every year. But that bank account's a thousand and some odd foot deep. Okay. So we've only withdrawn 10%. So if you, at your maximum amount of savings, only draw your bank account 10%, are you really concerned? I'm not that good with money. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm buying new guns all the time, <laughs> buying things for the guns, buying things I can shoot through the guns. I get it. Like, I, I totally get I totally get it. But, you know, you're trying to forge a way forward so that we can become more sustainable with water and and still be able to produce crops to feed this growing population. So tell me a little bit about that. So that's where we're at. A lot of people are panicking when we've gone through 10 to 11% of our bank account. I'm not ready to panic. I have identified that we need to figure out how to use less water because if our weather patterns don't change and we keep pulling that down, pretty soon we get to the point where there's not much groundwater and it doesn't, it costs too much to pull the groundwater out. But we have time to do that. Maybe it takes us another 30 years. Maybe we try to slow that rate of decline down in half in the first 10 half again in the second 10, and maybe half again in the third 10. So we get down to where maybe we're only dropping six inches a year. But that gives us a temporal period of about 30 years. And they're probably the most we'll draw that aquifer down to maybe 300 foot. So all that we'll have taken out of that checking account is 30%. We'd still have 70% left, but that gives us time as a community to figure out how to have alternative crops, technology to keep up, and figure out how to replenish that aquifer. So we have time to work through this situation where we can keep producing food and fiber, 
to feed the people. The one thing I just like to throw in here, everybody says it's the farmer is the end user of that water and they're the ones that are making money off that water. We are making some money off that water, but we're not the end user. Who's the end user of the alfalfa that is grown here? I would argue the tourist that goes to Tillamook that eats that ice cream cone. Our hay goes to Tillamook, the cow eats that hay, that cow produces milk, that milk produces ice cream, and we eat the ice cream. So I could say consumers are all the end users of the water that is being used in Harney County. And who doesn't love ice cream? Exactly. If we can eat ice cream while we're shooting coyotes, that's <laughs> a perfect deal. <laughs> that does sound like quite a challenge. I'm going to have to put that one on my bucket list. So compare that to, to Wallowa County, Dad. What are the water issues that we face up there? Well, storage is our biggest issue. And so we have a tremendous amount of water that runs off. Uh, we have rechargeable aquifers. Uh, we have underground aquifers that exit the county. Uh, the, the amount of water that we have is not our issue. We have a relatively small amount of farmland compared to the amount of water that we have. Uh, we have one storage, and that's in Wallowa Lake. And uh, it is significant and does service a large area. But the rest of it is in the form of ditches. And uh, once the once the snow melts and and the runoff ends, that's it. And so uh, we have a relatively short growing season, uh, much like here, and and we get by as is. But we have a lot of dry land ground that could be more productive if we had more storage. We have a lot of leaching out through some of the ditches that could be piped. There's concern over doing that, that we would lose some wetlands that, that are created out of that. But... Uh, the amount of water that we have is, is is not of concern. And because you are concerned about water, um, and talking to Representative Owens here, you've innovated some ways so that you can reduce the amount of water that you use already. And you've reduced your own use of water by close to 30%. We have. Uh, we've just adopted innovation as it comes out. We haven't designed the innovation ourselves, so We've been very proactive in trying to figure out how we can do conservation through efficiency. And a lot of the way we can do conservation through efficiency is with our irrigation practice and our irrigation technology. So we have put in low elevation sprinkler application. We put in drag lines. We're figuring out how to get the amount of water that we put on the crop to match the evapotranspiration needs of that crop and trying to make our delivery system the most efficient possible. What is, and I'm going to take a stab at this word that I've never tried before, evapotranspiration? Yeah, evapotranspiration. So it is the plant transpires, and then you have evaporation. So it's combining the evaporation and the transpiration of the plant to know how much water a plant would need. So the transpiration is water molecules moving... Um, through the vacuoles of the plant cell walls onto its surface and then evaporating, correct? So I can say transpiration, but I can't say vacuoles <laughs> or stoma or guard cells, but I think you have it about right. I think you nailed it. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of the projects that we're doing on the Six Ranch right now, um, actually we just completed, is removing a bunch of juniper. So we just cut thousands of juniper trees, piled them up, going to burn them this winter, have a wonderful time lighting all these things on fire. 
but what we were looking at was about 33 gallons of transpiration per tree per day. Amazing. So when we're talking about the scale of thousands of juniper trees, all of them right along the Wallawa River, now each one of those is allowing an extra 33 gallons of water a day to go down the river, keep that water more cool, allow for more irrigation downstream and allow for more fish to move upstream. Like there's a win all across the board and, and folks, these are an invasive type of juniper tree. So a painting I have of the ranch from uh, 1906 shows zero juniper trees in the painting whatsoever. So in the span of a century, we get completely clogged up with these things and we just had a really badass tree filling through go through and murder every single one of them and I couldn't be happier about it. So Todd, I got to ask you, didn't James's governor give you money to actually raise your dam? Yes, she did. All right. Yep. And so it wasn't actually raising the dams. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers came in and take a look at the dam uh, safety issues, and they asked that we lower the amount that was being held back. And so it's only being able to, to hold back about 70% of the pool right now. And so the $14 million that's coming in um, that was uh, – through the governor's proposed budget, yeah, that, that is going to get us back to a, nearly a full pool. So we were in a meeting with the governor about a year and a half ago, Todd and I, with some other commissioners when I was still a county commissioner, and uh, the governor was going around and everybody was making comments, and when the governor got to Todd, her first comment was, we got you a dam, didn't you? And, and Todd graciously said, yes, you did, ma'am, and asked a few questions. When it got to me, I asked, can I have a dam? And she said, no. So I think there was some, definitely some favoritism going on at that time. Yeah, and I responded that you actually had to have water first. <laughs> and she agreed with them. So. <laughs> and just, just to clear up the, uh, the 70% pool and the full pool for, for those folks who are interested, um, we're not talking about the actual amount of water that is held in the lake because at 70% right now we're only holding back like 17 feet of water in a 300-foot deep lake. So when we can go to full pool, that just means we can hold back 30% more than what we're currently holding, which over the span of a lake turns into a lot of acre feet, which is a, is a measurement that water is, is commonly referred to in when it pertains to irrigation. Is that correct? That is correct. 326,000 gallons in an acre foot of water. Wow. Yeah, when we talk about things like cubic feet per second or cubic meters per second um, or acre feet, these numbers just get so big that it's almost impossible to think about them in terms of gallons. It is. And so you'll, you'll see a lot of people refer to water like, is it at a cubic foot a second? So when someone says, you know, 500 cubic feet a second, to me, it doesn't mean a whole lot. So cubic foot is kind of like a basketball. So it's 500 cubic feet a second. It's 500 basketballs going through that pipe every second. That's it was a, it's a lot. To imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were looking at the, the Wallawa River today, which was as high as I've ever seen it, um, I think, you know, first thing this morning, it was around 14,000 basketballs of water per second. Just a tremendous amount of energy. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're down here also next to the Steens Mountains. And the, and the Steens 
are an interesting geographical feature. It's a huge fault line, right? Yes, it is. Biggest in the state. So the Steens Mountains, super cool, super beautiful. And historically, it had a ton of big mule deer. And it took years and years and years of application to be able to get a tag down here. And then a combination of events occurred. And earlier, you cited that annual grasses... Um, which deer have a really hard time consuming and getting nutritional benefit from elk population increasing, which an elk will take up the niche of five or six deer um, given the same habitat, and then an increase in predation and probably some other factors that are a little bit more difficult to determine. But what have you seen over the, the course of your time here in terms of deer population that you've been able to observe? Wow, so... I first started coming up here probably in 1986, and uh, used to be able to go out and see literally thousands of deer in the fields and the hills in the evening, uh, a lot of mule deer. Now there's probably 5% of that population, 5 to 10%. It's uh, kind of crazy. Uh, the annual invasive grasses have taken over, the Medusa head to the cheatgrass, uh, to the elk. Used to go up on what we call beaver tables, and when I first came in this country, if you saw an elk track it was big news mm-hmm. you would talk about it and then 10 years after that you'd start seeing elk and it was big news now if you go up there and don't see elk it's big news but you don't see deer anymore and do those elk ever come down here in the crops they do so we have a couple herds that come down and uh eat a lot of the alfalfa they like the alfalfa and is that just a, a big benefit to you that the elk are down here consuming that alfalfa? It's a huge benefit. I'd love to run a hundred head of elk in an alfalfa field that I'm trying to cut for tonnage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a a 750-pound bull elk is going to consume um, about 30 pounds of wet matter per day. And um, you can extrapolate that down to a cow elk that's going to weigh between 450 and 650 pounds. So if you have a hundred head out there and they're consuming between 20 and 30 pounds a day, that's going to get expensive for you pretty quickly. Your margins aren't huge in this stuff. It is not. Yeah. So those pivots at the elk hurt, definitely we see a a, uh, less of a return off those fields. And how much do they wallow too? If they eat 25 to 30 pounds, I mean. Yeah. If if there's a wet spot, they need to wallow to cool off. Yeah. Yeah, and we we can get into wallows on a on a future elk episode, but just to explain, um, a wallow is a place where an elk's going to get down in muddy type ground and thrash around, kick water up onto his or her belly. The calves tend to be very playful there. Young bulls are very playful. They will urinate in the water. They'll drink the water. Um, it's it's a big scent marking area. And it, it's an important social dynamic, but it also helps keep insects off them. Um, it does a lot of biological things for an elk. So that's what a wallow is. And if you have one in the middle of what is really a, a lawn that we're trimming and using the trimmings to sell so that other animals can eat it, and then we can eat them, then that is a detriment because now that area is no longer in production. So Commissioner Nash, what made you decide to become a commissioner? I kind of thought about it for a long time, and I thought uh, maybe when I retire that that would be something that I'd like to get into. But uh, I guess the thing that that started me thinking toward that was the frustration in uh, dealing with the Forest Service, uh, dealing with uh, ODF&W on some levels, um, 
And then uh, not knowing how to articulate my positions in those things and, and knowing what buttons to push, I became uh, stock growers president in 2010 in Wallowa County. And at that time, one of the things I challenged myself to do was to get a rule changed uh, within ODF&W that would allow, and, and this was completely detached from from ranching, mind you, but it was to get a rule change so that uh, active military could come home and, and hunt. And I thought if I could work myself through that process that I would learn how to do some of those things that I didn't know how to do. And, uh, and so I muddled my way through that. Um, a year after I, w- I was president in 2013, did get that rule changed and uh, continued to be active uh, within Oregon Cattlemen's Association on the wolf issue and, uh, and a few other things. And, and then in 2016, I was asked if I would run by uh, the Central Committee in, uh, in Wallowa County. I considered it. I asked my family members. I asked some of the people there that uh, I had respect for that had been involved in, in government entities. And and um, and I was encouraged to do so. So I went ahead and threw my hat in the ring and threw my $50 down and, and uh, ended up winning the election. Best or worst $50 you ever spent? Well... You know, it, it's a, that's, a, that's an interesting question, but I would probably say best um, for sure. Uh, it's It's been so interesting doing this. It's not like any job I've ever had before, uh, not even close. I was never on a school board or anything else, so... Uh, it it was it was challenging to the point of being really frustrating the first year and especially the first half a year and now that I'm three and a half years into the process I tell people when they ask me do I enjoy it um, in the first year I told them yeah sometimes but I don't know that I'm even supposed to enjoy it now I tell people that I shamefully do enjoy it and uh, and a lot of it has been because of the camaraderie of, of commissioners and representatives like yourself and, and others. Being able to go to battle for my community and, uh, and win, lose, or draw the frustration level that I had way back when, when I wasn't able to maneuver through the system, if I can do that for somebody else, um, it, it, it's a really a, a good feeling. I can tell you that that fifty dollars that was spent in your county that day was the best fifty bucks that was spent in your county. Getting to know Todd as a as a friend and uh, working with him as a county commissioner, uh, he's uh, very good at what he does. Yeah, I agree. He cooked some pretty good steaks tonight too. He did. Yeah. He did. Small but fairly good. Only about thirty two to forty eight <laughs> yeah. ounces each. Yeah, a, a, a petite um, forty eight ounce ribeye, yeah. and I think we made five of them. So. <laughs> Um, I definitely housed one of those and, uh, and then some dessert and seconds on cauliflower. So you were the end user of some of that water that was being pumped. Exactly. All right. Exactly. If there's people out here who are thinking that 
maybe they're at a point in their life where they feel like representing someone else, whether that is um, being a class president or um, leadership on their sports team or um, leadership in, in any way where they can represent other people and and kind of take their cause forward. What would you say to those people who are who are thinking that maybe maybe they want to step into a leadership role? What would I say to them? Try it. Uh, see if it's something that you find you're good at. But don't do it because you think you're going to empower yourself. Don't do it because you might have a specific item that you want to possibly change for yourself or change for your family. Do it because you want to try to help your team, your class. Do it because you have an attitude of service. I would wholeheartedly agree. You have to do this with with somebody else's best interest in mind. And it was kind of interesting. This is the first time that I've been to Representative Owen's house. And, and uh, they lived, Celeste, and he lived in a beautiful place here in Harney County. Wide open spaces. But I've seen Mark go to battle um, on forest issues and timber issues. And from his house, you can't hardly see a tree. And uh, it isn't in his interest to do that. It's in his community's interest. And uh, Mark has done a fantastic job of, of representing those who can't articulate those points. And uh, it's, it's humbling to see him do that. Yeah, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that, that that's the biggest misunderstanding about leadership is that it just means that you're in charge. Like when, when you're the leader, you are working for the people you're leading, not the other way around. And if you can figure that out and make peace with it, and that's the reason that you're doing it is you want to enable someone else or a group of other people to be able to do things better um, by, by serving them in a leadership role, you can do it very well. If, if it's for any other reason, man, you're probably going to have some hard times. And that's, that's the root of corruption, I think. Any other issues that you would like people outside of Southeast Oregon to understand about what's going on here? I'm not sure if it's an issue, but maybe it's a, a philosophy. Or uh, maybe philosophy is not even the right word, but uh, Oregon is a very diverse state. So we got great oceans. We have the Avar Desert. We got the Alps of Oregon up in Enterprise. We have high desert. And not a one-size-fits-all. We try not to dictate what happens in a lot of the urban areas. We don't really care if you have a nude bicycle race in Portland. Maybe we don't think that's something that would happen in Harney County. But uh, we would really would like you not to care that we try to uh, have a derby to shoot a predator animal. We don't care if you have a fishing derby. Don't try to bring your values to our area. Make sure that you understand that uh, regionalization of policy, rule, and law is something that should be supported. We are all one state. We're all different individuals in different areas. Very well said. Any closing thoughts for you, Dan? Well, it's always tough to speak after Mark. I would much rather take credit for whatever Mark said. No, I, Mark captured it very well. We, we are a very diverse state. Um, we are unique counties and, and, uh, 
and districts and and even within our own districts we have very different dynamics and uh, trying to figure out how to work all these things together for mutual benefit of everybody we have that in mind uh, we like to hear from our constituents and uh, yeah well I'll be a little bit more blunt about it if you don't know a swather from a baler or which end of a cow stands up first and you think that you want to set some policy or have an opinion about agriculture you need to educate yourself before you establish that opinion because once you have an opinion it's very difficult for people to change it even if you believe that you yourself are open-minded new evidence doesn't necessarily change your mind um, so educate yourself first and then make make up your opinion and I think that that's a good thing to live by anywhere you go. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you, sir? Where can you find out more about me? Don't Google me, but uh, go ahead and email me. So email me in, uh, at rep, R-E-P, dot Mark Owens at OregonLegislature.gov. Ask me any questions. Everybody always has an invite to come out to uh, Southeast Oregon. If you want to come out and educate yourself, shoot us an email. We'll have you out here. We'll show you what side of a cow stands up first. We'll show you a cutter and bather, and we can help educate you. Awesome. I don't think that there's many representatives that would actually live by that, and I think that you absolutely will. And uh, if they want to find out more about County Commissioner Todd Nash... Well, they can look, go on the county website and they can find my email there. I post my my cell phone. Uh, I'm available anytime, and I prefer to get a phone call. Uh, same way, and, and some of the most effective things that we've had have been inviting legislators and, and different people out. Uh, we've had exchanges with uh, junior high kids and, and brought them out to our places for uh, – four or five days at a time. Um, all those things have value. And uh, um, we, the more that we meet and understand each other, the, the better we're going to get along. Awesome. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed hearing from Commissioner Nash and Representative Owens. If you want to follow up with these gentlemen, they would love to hear from you. This podcast was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to subscribe and share it with a friend. Talk to you again soon.